Okay, so tonight we're doing we're doing Hebrews. So we're only doing one book tonight, and we're going to do Hebrews um, because it's quite a weighty book. It's got a lot of <clears throat> theological content. So I'm going to try and keep it to time. Try not to go over overboard. Um, but yeah, as usual, if you guys have any questions, any comments, any thoughts that you'd like to share, please feel free to stop me. Um, please put your questions on the in the comment section. And yeah, so if you have your Bibles, just turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is, it's a stunning book. If you read it for the first time, it could be a weird book, you know, because there's a lot of references going on, a lot of things happening. But the more that I read it, the more blown away I am, the more I love it. And the main reason for this, I think, is because it deals with the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus as our great high priest. You don't find Jesus being called a high priest or a priest in any other place in the New Testament. It's Hebrews that shows us that aspect of Christ. Other books in the New Testament highlight Christ as the great prophet or the sovereign king. It's Hebrews that shows us that he is also a priest. So it can get a bit tricky and some of the things happening might get confusing. So uh, if I don't make sense or I'm assuming knowledge, again, please feel free to stop me. Feel free to comment and share your thoughts. Now, if you, if you want to enter into an endless debate with other Christians, ask them this question. Who is the author of Hebrews? You can go on and on, right? It can quickly become a rabbit hole. Who wrote Hebrews? So some say it's Apollos. Uh, Apollos was a church leader and he was friends with Paul. And he's described as being mighty in the scriptures and eloquent and fervent in spirit. So Apollos was very eloquent. And the Greek that's used in this book is the most sophisticated Greek in the New Testament. I think there's a strong case for Apollos as the author. Even Martin Luther uh, thinks that Apollos wrote Hebrews. So there's a, there's a golden nugget for next year's Reformation Day quiz. Uh, John, John Calvin, Calvin thought that Luke wrote this book because Luke is also a very good writer, but the level of writing here surpasses even Luke, right? Um, a popular view is that Paul wrote it. And I also used to think uh, um, that Paul, Paul wrote it. I used to think so. Now I definitely don't. Uh, I just thought, yeah, if you don't know who wrote it, then just go with Paul. You know, that's the case with the New Testament at all times. Um, and those who say it's Paul say it must have been the case where Paul was dictating it and then someone else was writing the letter because we've seen with Paul's letters, like in Romans, that he would have a secretary and the secretary would write for him while he dictates. But the issue was with that is, firstly, Paul would normally sign off the letter. He would introduce himself and then sign off. Hebrews doesn't have that. And secondly, chapter 2, verse 3 says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So he's talking about the message of the gospel. The author says that it was declared by the Lord, and those who heard it then came and told us. But remember, Paul heard the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Paul goes to great lengths to say that he didn't get it from any other human being. He says, I got it straight from the Lord. So it's unlikely that Paul would now say in Hebrews, I got it from those who heard it from the Lord, right? Other people think it was Barnabas, but at the end of the day, it's not a big deal. If the Lord wanted us to know who the author of the book was, then we would know. 
So who was the audience? Again, we don't know who uh, exactly. But in chapter 13, uh, towards the end, I think it's verse 24, it says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. So those who came from Italy send you greetings. So one of the popular views is that he's writing to the church in Rome. Uh, and there's other theories, but again, it's not that important for us to know. Now, the name or the term Hebrews is not in this book. It doesn't say anywhere uh, uh, in Hebrews. It doesn't say Hebrews anywhere here, right? So why does it have that title? It's because it deals with a lot of Jewish issues and Judaism. So people have argued that it's written primarily to Jews. And when it comes to time period, so we're heading towards the end of the first century. But it's sometime before AD 70. So remember AD 70, the temple was destroyed. The Jewish temple was destroyed. And we know it's sometime before then because the author is still mentioning the sacrificial system, which implies the temple system was still up and running. It's unlikely that he would be saying, um, he'd be mentioning the temple system after it was destroyed. So this is written just before it was destroyed. And by that time, there weren't really any strict Jewish churches, right? It was becoming more mixed as the Gentiles came in. So it was Jew and Gentile. So it is to Christians, but it's predominantly Jewish. And these Jews, because of persecution, are being tempted to go back to Judaism. They're tempted to leave the faith. Okay? So Hebrews is a sermon. It reads like a sermon. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And that is why it doesn't have a normal introduction. It's a sermon and it is, it's a helpful insight into preaching back then. And it's, it's preaching from a very gifted individual, someone who knows the scriptures. We have other sermons in scripture. Jesus gives a sermon on the mount and we have Peter's sermon in Acts. But those are abridged, right? The writers of the gospel there are, are paraphrasing the sermons. You can read through the sermon on the mount in five minutes. I'm sure Jesus said more than that. And those ones are paraphrased. But here in this book, it's a complete sermon. And one of the internal arguments for that is you can look at chapter 13. In verse 22, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So that is the word, that is a word used in Acts. When Paul goes to a synagogue and they ask Paul, do you have a word of exhortation for us? And then he would stand up and preach. And so word of exhortation was a way uh, a way of saying, do you have a sermon for us? Would you preach for us? So this is a sermon. And what is a sermon about? Remember, what Bible did Jesus and the disciples use? They used the Old Testament. right? They preached from the Old Testament. At the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was, exp was expounding on the Old Testament. And this book is full of Old Testament references. There are seven Old Testament passages quoted just in the first chapter of Hebrews. And there's almost 40 explicit quotations from the Old Testament here in this book. And this is not even counting the many, many allusions and references. So the two main foundational passages that the author is teaching from, he's preaching from, is Psalm 95 and Psalm 110. So those are the important texts behind the sermon, right? So now, if you have your Bibles and you turn to chapter 1, chapter 1 is said to be the greatest chapter in the Bible on the deity of Christ. So verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So it's an amazing introduction to Christ. He gives us some background saying, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In one verse, he describes the Old Testament. In many ways, at different times, God spoke to our fathers, the prophets. So the Old Testament didn't come at one point in history. Right? Think back to when we were going through the Old Testament books, right? the many years, the many ways that God worked through the prophets and through kings and various individuals. Many years through different people at various times. Sometimes it was a dream. Sometimes it was a vision. Sometimes God would speak directly to Moses or Abraham. Sometimes it was through the Ten Commandments where he would come and write with his own finger. He spoke through poetry, through narrative and didactic sections and uh, apocalyptic sections. So that is how God worked. But now in the last days, God has spoken by his son, right? The text says God has spoken, past tense. We have everything we need already. So this is a strong argument for the sufficiency of scripture as well as the completeness of scripture, right? Scripture is enough, it's sufficient and it's complete. If someone now comes along and says, I am a prophet and God has given me a new revelation, well, that's interesting. I thought God has spoken in his son, Jesus Christ. You know, we have all that we need. Are you saying that you are greater than Jesus? And today we are amazed by how, how God would speak through prophets, you know, through dreams and visions, speaking directly to them. But none of them compares to Christ, right? He's the pinnacle, the high, the pinnacle, the high point of God speaking to us is through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is in control of everything, right? That's what the passage tells us. He created everything and he sustains everything by the word of his power. He upholds all things just by his word. Then the author shows us that Christ is Lord. So look at verse 5. So Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So he's, he's quoting these Old Testament Psalms, showing that Christ is Lord. He is King and that he is above angels. We don't have a lot of information around this period in time about what the Jewish people believed about angels, but there's enough from Hebrews and also when we looked at the book of Colossians where we can, it suggests that there was worship of angels and some other weird stuff happening. There was some fascination of angels, right? You never really see that in scripture. Angels are all over scripture, but you never see fascination or obsession over angels. So something must have happened that angels became prominent uh, in Judaism, that Jewish people just became obsessed with them. Now, if our understanding is correct, then the church at that, at that time, at that present moment, is suffering persecution. They are, um, they, there was, there was, they are not yet being martyred, right? They're not yet being uh, uh, killed, but they are being thrown in jail. And when they're in prison, remember, the only way to survive in prison back then was for, for people outside to be supporting you. So the church had that. They had other Christians 
coming and supporting, bringing food, bringing clothes to those in prison. While these Christians would visit those in jail, their houses would be, would be unattended and then they would be plundered and ransacked. So they were suffering persecution, but they were not being martyred yet. Right? The, 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 the author even says, you, have, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. But it was a horrible situation still. Christianity at the time was an illegal religion. So you could be put to death for it, but it wasn't happening yet, right? They weren't, just, they weren't putting Christians to death yet. The history of the Roman emperor shows that it depended on the emperor's mood. So if he felt like killing Christians, then he would do it. Sometimes he'd just be like, oh, leave, it, leave them alone. It would depend on the city as well. So persecution was never really empire-wide. It would, it would differ from place to place. It depended on the region. So because of this, the temptation is to go back to some form of Judaism because uh, he talks about sacrifices and Moses and the temple and it seemed that these believers wanted some compromise. They wanted a halfway between Christianity and Judaism. So they said, let's make Jesus Christ an angel, right? They were saying Jesus is just an angel and this is where the angel worship is creeping in. And they would do this because the more they aligned with Judaism, the more they moved away from Christianity towards Judaism, the more legal their religion would be. Because unlike, unlike Christianity, Judaism was a legal religion. It was permitted, so they wouldn't be persecuted. Uh, they wouldn't be thrown into jail. So they're trying to make Christ an angel. But the, the, but the author of Hebrews is telling them, no, Jesus is greater than the angels. So look at verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, and to which of the angels has he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet, right? So you can see that he's confronting this. He's telling them, why, why are you saying that Christ is an angel? He's greater than them. And what are angels anyways? Verse 14 tells us, he says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So we need to have a correct understanding of angels. Angels are real. Um, they are Good angels and there are evil angels. What are evil angels called? They are called demons. Good angels are just angels. They exist and they are around us. They are sent to serve those who are to inherit salvation. So they are sent, they are sent to serve God's people. And what does that look like? I'm not entirely sure, right? Uh, maybe they protect us from the assaults of Satan. Uh, they preserve us in strange situations. Whatever it is, they serve us. And we also know that they could appear to us as human beings who you could entertain unaware. So you could have an angel for lunch one Sunday afternoon after church. Uh, that should motivate us to hospitality, right? You know, uh, you know the question, if you could have dinner with any famous person on the planet, who would it be? Well, now you know the correct answer is angels, right? Let's hope to host and entertain angels because there's a blessing in doing that. That's what scripture teaches. Um, reach out to people. Might be, you might be entertaining angels unawares. But nowhere are we told that we, are, we have our own guardian angel or something. Scripture doesn't say that you have an angel that is assigned to you at birth. Right? That is an unbiblical teaching. So that's what's going on in chapter 1. If you turn to chapter 2, chapter 2 is said to be the greatest chapter on the humanity of Christ in the Bible. So chapter 1 is the deity of Christ. Chapter 2 is the humanity of Christ. And it starts with a warning. Throughout Hebrews, you find hectic warnings. There's five of them. And they are some of the most hectic, the most serious warnings in the entire Bible. Never mind just the Old Testament. It's both Old and New Testament. 
they've also been the cause of a lot of debate, uh, division and stress, you know, stressing over salvation, whether, whether you can be saved and lose your salvation or not. And there's all of this commotion over what these warnings mean, and we'll go through them. Um, they're important to the entire book of Hebrews, so we'll spend some time trying to understand them because we need to know what they mean. Is Hebrews saying that if you are a true Christian, then you can lose your salvation? Or is it hypothetical? Or what's going on there? But when we read these five warning passages, right, don't take them as the main point of Hebrews because then you've missed the big picture. What the author does is he points us to Christ throughout the book, right? It's this teaching and then how it points to Christ and then the application. It's this warning and then, the, and then Christ and then the application. You'll see that happening over and over and over. So if you read it and you go away saying, oh, I don't know if I'm saved and, uh, and there is no repentance or if you're not looking to Christ and the warnings have no real effect on your life, then you've missed it. You've missed the point. So don't miss the point. Chapter one, he's talked about Christ. And then he starts chapter two with therefore, right? So in light of what I said, in light of the fact that Christ is greater than the angels, then look at verse one. He says, we must now pay closer, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away, right? So the term drift away there is a nautical term. It refers to a boat when, when a boat is not tied down, it's not anchored properly, it drifts away. Imagine you're on a boat at night, you tie yourself to the harbor, but you don't do it prop properly and then you go to sleep. The next morning you wake up and you are in the middle of the ocean, but you did not feel the drift, right? And that is the idea here. The drift is not easily spotted. It's, it's like any sin. You know, we don't, see, we don't see ourselves drifting further away from the Lord and into sin. We don't see it. It's not perceptible. If a guy has an affair outside of marriage, it's not like one day he woke up and chose to commit adultery all of a sudden. You know, it's a drift into that. It builds up. That sin started and built up long before he even committed the act. And it's the same with the Lord Jesus. It's not as though you are a passionate Christian, you love God and neighbor and you're serving and you're obeying and then suddenly you deny the faith. It's a drift, right? It starts in the heart long before and then we just see the culmination. And I'm sure we can all testify to something of that, right? You might realize one day when you wake up that, oh, you know, I'm caught up in the sin. But you think back and you realize that it was a drift. You started long before. And so the author says, don't drift, you know, um, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And there is no standing still in the Christian walk, right? There is no I'm just going to stand here and wait and take a break. It's either you're walking forwards or you're moving backwards. It's like there's no lukewarm in the Christian faith. It's either you are hot or you're cold. There is no middle ground. There is no plateau. If you think you are standing still, if you think you're being neutral, you are actually drifting away. And then he says, verse 2, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, so this is, this is why Hebrews is very radical because it turns upside down what most people think. Most people think the Old Testament was strict. You know, if you broke the law then, oh, it was bad. You know, you'd be killed. The Lord would strike you down. But in two places, it's here. And then later on, he says, are you crazy? The only, they only, speaking of them in the Old Testament, he says they only had a little bit of light. You know, it was ministered by angels. And if you broke the law then, it was, there was punishment. 
But you, after Christ, you've been giving, you've been given this much light, which was ministered, administered by Christ himself. How much worse do you think the punishment is going to be? You've been given more light. And so he says, verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We have Christ. We have the fulfillment of all the ages. We have the Son of God. We have God himself. So if you neglect that, is there anything that could be more precious than Christ? So if you neglect him, then how will you escape? The judgment will be far worse, right? And so he says, if we go down to verse 9, he says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should be made the founder of their salvation perfect through through suffering. So, and then if you go down to verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. For surely, verse 16, for surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had, to be made like, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So all of these passages that I read focus on Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, his high priestly ministry. He had to be made like us. He didn't take upon himself the nature of angels. Right? He hasn't come to save any angels. The demons, so remember, demons are fallen angels. They are not going to be saved. We are fallen human beings, but we have the offer and the hope of redemption. The demons don't. It's one strike and they are out. But Jesus came to save human beings. And so if he's going to take our place, he, then he is going to sympathize with us. And, and if, sorry, if he's going to take our place and if he's going to sympathize with us, and save us, he has to become like us. That's what those passages are saying. And so Christ takes on human flesh. He takes on our nature. God lowers himself below angels for a little while so that he can become like us. So that when he has suffered and has been tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So he identifies with us and that is a tremendous comfort. That is a comfort because no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing or suffering, Christ has experienced more. So he can truly sympathize with us. You know, sometimes you always say, oh, no one knows what I'm going through, but the Lord does, right? And the reason why Christ has experienced, in fact, Christ has experienced more, right? He's experienced worse because Christ resisted sin completely, totally. When we are tempted with sin, what do we end up doing? We give in. We compromised. But Christ never gave in to sin. Right? We see that with Christ in the wilderness uh, being tempted by Satan. And we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's fighting, he's fighting sin to such degree that it seems he may even begin to sweat blood. So in our temptation, Christ knows what we are going through. He's able to help those who are tempted. And <clears throat> did Jesus know grief? Definitely, right? He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Lazarus. He knew grief and he knew sorrow. He didn't know grief over sin, but he knew grief over the sin of others. Because death is a consequence of sin. 
That is why Jesus is crying over Lazarus. Even though he's about to raise him up, he's crying because this is, the de- this is death and it's a consequence of sin. It's a sorrowful thing. So whatever we are tempted with, whatever trials we are facing, we must remember that he is truly a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. He knows what it is to be abandoned and alone. He knows, he knew what loneliness was. He knew anxiety and sorrow. He said, I am sorrowful even unto death. So obviously not sinful anxiety and stress. Uh, He experienced all the hurts and the pains that are common to human beings in all the earth. And it is glorious, right? It's glorious and it is important because most Christians, we tend to think that Jesus is like Superman, right? We might think it subconsciously. Many Christians think that Jesus is like Superman, that it was easy, right? That it was easy for Jesus, that it was easy for him to have to deal with sin and temptation. But that is not true. Let it sink into your mind that he became like us in every way. So as difficult as it is for you, it was difficult, if not worse, for him. And we must remember that and rejoice in his humanity because he is fully human, right? We saw that he's fully God. He's, he's, de- he's fully, uh, he's, uh, we saw his deity in chapter one, and now we're seeing his humanity. He's fully human. He has to, to identify with us. Otherwise, he can't really save us. He cannot represent us. But Jesus Christ is our representative. Where Adam failed, Jesus did not. So um, if you then go to chapter 3, the author told us that Jesus is greater than the angels. And then in chapter 3, he tells us that he's greater than Moses. So chapter 3, verse 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So Moses is, is massive in Judaism, right? He's an important figure, uh, Moses and Abraham. And so then he shows that Jesus is greater than Moses. And then chapter four, he goes into this whole idea of rest. And this is an important theme in Hebrews. If I ask you, when were you saved? What would you say? Um, it was when you repented and you believed, whenever that was. So let's say you were saved in 2020. But in eternity past, before God had created anything, you were already saved. God had already set his love upon you. When Jesus was on the cross, you were in him. Romans teaches us that, right? It says you were saved when you repented and believed and you are being saved right now. So the Bible speaks of being saved, uh, being saved now and will be saved. These are all different ways of looking at your salvation. The writer of Hebrews focuses on the the more future aspect. He focuses on the eschatological salvation. And so he says this, how do you know if you are saved? So Paul would say, you were saved in Christ. But the writer of Hebrews will say, you will be saved if you endure to the end. I hope that makes sense. So in a certain sense, in a certain sense, nobody's saved, right? So when he talks about rest in this chapter here, here he's saying uh, Moses took the people out of, out, of, uh, out of Egypt and he promised them rest, right? What was the rest? It was the promised land of Canaan. Moses never got to enter in the promised land, but Joshua did. And then hundreds of years later comes David. And David, he says that there remains a rest for the people of God. So this is weird. Moses says, there's a rest for you. They get into the land, but there's still a rest remaining. What's going on? This rest keeps on getting pushed out, it seems, right? Even when Christ comes, Jesus comes, 
Jesus Christ comes and he brings rest. We are told that uh, there's still, we are told that there still remains another rest, right? And chapter 4 verse 11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So there, so there is rest in Christ for the believer, but it is not the full rest. It is not consummated. It is saying, strive to enter that rest because remember the children of Israel, they didn't believe God and they disobeyed God. So God destroyed many of them. They did not endure to the end. So they did not obtain that rest. Okay. So it's saying that those who will be saved are those who persevere until the end. And then there are things that here that are secondary as they relate to the Lord's day, as they relate to going to church on a Sunday. And so verse nine says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So I'd argue that the whoever there is Christ. Christ is the only one who finished his works. Right? And when did he do that? At the cross. At the cross it was finished, but it was fully finished in his resurrection on a Sunday. So that is the significance of church on a Sunday. Muslims meet on a Friday. Friday, which is the sixth day, that is the number of man, right? That is the number of the beast. Um, the Jewish people, they meet on a Saturday, that's the seventh day. Christians, we meet on the first day, right? Now, we now begin our week with rest. And right now, the thinking that, that we have, the mentality is that uh, we work first and then we get rest. But in Christ, we, have, we now begin in rest because it's not salvation by works, Right? Now we are saved, we enter into that rest and we go out and we work because we are saved, right? In light of obtaining the rest, we now work. So that's, that's the, the, the main messages that you get from chapter four. Chapter five, he continues with Jesus as the great high priest. And then you get Melchizedek. So if you turn to chapter five, verse five, verse five, he says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So remember when we looked at Genesis, we discussed Melchizedek, right? So what does, what does his name mean? So Melech, if you break his word up, it's Melech and Zedek. Melech means king and then... Uh, Zedek means righteousness, right? So uh, it's king of righteousness, Melchizedek. So if you want a unique name for your child, I've given you one for free. And at some point, uh, Melchizedek is referred to as the king of Salem. Salem means peace. So he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But he's also a high priest. He's also a priest, sorry. If you read through the Old Testament, you find that, that there are priests we had the, there were the 12 tribes of Israel and the law required that all priests, if you were to be a priest, you were to be from one specific tribe, one tribe of the 12, and that is the tribe of Levi. One of the arguments for a, for a Jewish person would be, how could Jesus be the Messiah? How could he be a high priest if he's not from the tribe of Levi? Right? So there is that apparent problem. So, you couldn't be a high priest, sorry, you couldn't be a priest if you were from the tribe of Judah. Yet Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Only Levites could be priests. And so how do we get around that? Well, the author of Hebrews answers that little problem, that conundrum. 
he says, wait a minute, there's another priestly line and it's Melchizedek. So David in Psalm 110 says, says that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what happened with Melchizedek? You know, what is the story there? Just to recap quickly. Remember, Abraham went to war with five kings and then the king of Sodom came to him and he ended up rescuing Lot, his nephew. And then Abraham meets this guy, this enigmatic figure who many Jewish people believe was God. Because if you read a description of Melchizedek, it's very ambiguous. You're not sure who this guy is. It says that he was without beginning of days and without end of days. And that could mean either that he was eternal, that means he was God, or it could mean that we don't know when he was born and when he died, which is more likely the correct interpretation. And uh, it also means we don't, know, we don't know who his mother and his father was. Right? He's just an enigmatic individual in the Old Testament. But we are told that he is a shadow and a type of Christ. Melchizedek is a priest and Abraham comes to him and he gives him tithes. He tithes, he gives him 10% of the plunder and he does this because he acknowledges that this man is greater than me. So he gives him tithes and in return, Abraham gets communion, he gets bread and wine. And then he's blessed by Melchizedek. And through that, uh, and through that what, the author of, what the writer of Hebrews does is he shows us what's called federal headship. So federal headship refers to um, when, when, when there's a head of a covenant and he represents all those who are under him, right? What the author of Hebrews says is Levi was in the loins of Abraham. So in other words, Levi was going to be a descendant of Abraham, right? Levi is represented by Abraham. So there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Levi. It's a few generations away. So in principle, Levi was in Abraham. And when Abraham bowed down before Melchizedek, Levi did the same because Melchizedek is a superior person. So Abraham, as a federal head, bowed down to him so that, so that is representative of everyone under Abraham. Now, the concept of federal headship is one we reject because in our very modern westernized minds, we stand for individuality, personal freedom, self-expression. That is why we might say, why must I go to hell for Adamson? You know, Adamson, I didn't. But at the same time, why must I go to heaven because of Christ, right? Like he's also ahead and he represents those who, who believe and that is God's grace. And we do understand the principle of federal headship when it comes to relations. We have a, we have a good president, then we'll have a good country. If there's a bad president, bad country. If we have a good CEO, good company, well run. Bad CEO, bad company. If you have a good father, there'll be a good family. If it's a bad father, then no one, in, no one in the family is happy, right? It's the head who represents all who are under him. So can you see how, hopefully you can see how brilliant this argument is. He's saying that you think that Christ can't be a high priest because he doesn't come from the priestly line of Levi. Well, Christ is part of a greater priestly line, the one Abraham bowed down and paid tithes to, right? It's the line of Melchizedek. So Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the Lord Jesus can be a high priest after the line of Melchizedek. And so after that, after that, uh, the end of chapter five, he gives them a warning. So there's another warning. It says verse 11, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing, for, th for though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he gives a, a vivid graphic picture. Imagine you walk in public, you, you walk into a mall and you see a 20-year-old breastfeeding. That would be disturbing because it is not right. You're, not, you're supposed to get the image of, of, uh, of drinking milk as not right at this point in time. He's saying you're immature. You still need milk. You're like a 20-year-old still breastfeeding. You wouldn't see that today and say, no, oh, that's cute. Right? That's actually disturbing. That is a mess. Something dysfunctional is happening with that family. And that is the idea you're supposed to get. Christians should be growing and maturing. You cannot remain a baby. It is unnatural in the, it's unnatural both in the physical realm and it is, it's unnatural in the spiritual realm. It's actually perverse. So uh, he gives more warnings if you go down to chapter 6. If you turn to chapter 6. And you look at verse 4. It says, For it is impossible in the case where in the case of those who have been who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So that's very strong language. That sounds it sounds like he's talking about a saved person, like a Christian. So, you know, our Arminians, uh, Arminians are those who argue that Jesus died for every human being and that it is up to the individual to be saved. They say that the final decision of whether you are saved or not does not lie with God, right? So Arminians say that you can enter into the kingdom of your own free will. And then you get, there's, there's those who differ within the Arminian camp. Some say, once you are in the kingdom, you are secure. Once you're saved, you're secure. But you get others who say, no, even if you are in the kingdom, you can lose your salvation. Because if you got in on your own, then you should be able to get out on your own, which is actually more consistent. If your free will got you in, then your free will could get you out. And those who say that uh, use this passage to justify it. They come to Hebrews 6 uh, verse 4, right? They use it to justify it. Because this passage seems to describe someone who is truly saved, who now turns their back on the Lord. So I don't hold that view. Uh, our church doesn't hold that view. We hold to the reform view that salvation belongs to the Lord. That's Psalm 3 verse 8. And we hold to election. That's Romans chapter 9. God chooses whom he will save. It's not up to us. God chooses. If you go through the entire Bible, no one ever picks the Lord. It is the Lord who picks and chooses. Right? He chose Abraham, he chose Jacob, he chose David. He picks all over the place. He chose Israel to make a nation. And now he's choosing his bride. He's choosing uh, his bride, the church, so that if God chooses you and saves you, you cannot be lost. If the Lord saves you, then you are part of his flock. You are his sheep. John chapter 6 verse 39 says, uh, Jesus says, I will not lose one sheep. So, can this passage mean that a person who is truly saved can ultimately deny the Lord? No, that would be denying that Jesus is a good shepherd. So then what does it mean? So look at, look how the, the author continues in verse 9. Verse 9, he says, Though we speak in this way, 
Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So that's a very important verse. Within the text, he's saying that these things do not belong to salvation. You see that they do not belong to salvation. So you could be enlightened. You could taste in the heavenly gift, share in the Holy Spirit, taste the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and not actually be saved. They are not things that belong to salvation. That is a pretty radical statement. That is a very radical statement. So what does it describe then? Maybe you know people who seem to have the Holy Spirit, who seem to understand and experience things of the age to come. People who seem to know the Lord, who seem to experience the blessing of knowing the Lord, who seem to love his word, and then they turn away and they deny the faith. These verses explain these people. And what it means is that they were never truly saved. According to the writer of Hebrews, who are those who are saved? It's those who endure to the end. Do you see that? Do you see his argument? So this is a real warning, right, that we should not take lightly. It's something that we should pay heed to and be praying that the Lord perseveres us, right? And then uh, chapter, so chapter 7, um, he talks about the, priest, the, the priestly order of Melchizedek and compares him to, to Jesus Christ. And that is what I was speaking about just earlier. And chapter 8, um, he says Jesus, is, Jesus is, not, is not only the high priest, but he brings a better covenant. Um, chapter 9, chapter nine, he talks about the earthly holy place and the heavenly holy place. The earthly holy place is the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. Sacrifices were made there. And then there is a heavenly holy place. And the author says, chapter 9, if you go down to verse 23, Verse 23, he says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with his rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So he mentions the copies. Remember when we did the intertestamental period, we talked about Alexander the Great. He, he, walked around, he went around conquering the known world. And as he did so, he would try and spread Greek culture. In Egypt, he built a city named after himself. He built, a, he built many cities called Alexandria. The one in Egypt had the largest library. It became a scholarly city. And so Alexandria was very influential in the early church as a way of uh, philosophy and a way of hermeneutics, right? Hermeneutics is, is the tools or the way that we interpret scripture. So Alexandria was a hotbed for Plato's philosophies. And it comes out in the book of Hebrews. Not that the author got stuff from Plato, but just like how Paul in Romans, he took Greek rhetoric and used it. So the author of Hebrews uses Plato's philosophies, which, which contain elements of truth. Plato talked about various forms and ideas. So he would talk about things having the ultimate form. So there's a chair. You know, what is a chair? Does, does a chair have two legs? Does it have three legs? Does it have four legs? We call all these things with different shapes and forms chairs but there's an ultimate chair it's almost and and he would the way he would describe it he would basically be saying it's it's like in heaven you know it's the ultimate chair out somewhere there right so he would say there's the ultimate form of this thing and here in the world in on earth we have copies it's just shadows of the real things the real things are ultimate right or the ultimate things are the, are the real things and so that kind of language should remind you of the Old Testament. Remember how the Old Testament speaks of types and shadows? 
Plato used the word copy instead, right? It's the copy of what is ultimately real and true. And the author is using that. He says, there is a temple up there in heaven, right? There's an altar and everything up there. And it's the real stuff. And so when Moses had to make a temple, had to build a temple and an altar, he had to make it exactly like one. He had to make it a copy. But this temple here in Jerusalem is just a shadow. It's just a copy. It's not the real thing. What's real is the one up there. And Jesus was the sacrifice that was accepted up there. So chapter 9, verse 24, that's what he says. He says, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, right, here on earth, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God as our priest on our behalf. So when you start to think and you see these things and you start to see them that way, it's, it's just amazing because everywhere you look in the Old Testament, it's just shadows. It's just shadows and types and copies. It's all pointing to the greater reality. And even more amazingly, it's all fulfilled in Christ. Right? Jesus Christ is the ultimate. So I hope, I hope that makes sense. Okay, and then we get to chapter 10. Chapter 10, he uses very strong language again. If you go down all the way to verse 24. He says, 20, verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So it seems some people at the time, one of the signs that they were apostatizing is that they would stop coming to church, right? They are, they are starting to not want to associate with God's people. They don't want to be associated with God's people anymore. Because remember, the context is there's increasing persecution of the church. So it is too dangerous, it's too costly to be associated with Christ and his people. But the author is rebuking that. Verse 25, he says, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the truth of the knowledge, sorry, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here he's referring to the Old Testament. Think of the guy who went and was picking up sticks on the Sabbath. You know, he's supposed to be resting on the Sabbath. He was breaking the Sabbath law by picking up sticks since that was him working. And there were witnesses to him doing this. And Moses asked the Lord, he's like, Lord, what must we do with him? And the Lord says, put him to death, stone him to death. That was the Old Testament before Christ. You see how strict God was, you know, um, how serious he was about holiness. But now we are under the covenant of grace, right? We are, we are in Christ. So you would think that God has relaxed now, right? But that is not the case. Verse 29 says, how much worse, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what is the reasoning? Why is the punishment greater? It's simple. It's because we have much more light. We have Christ now. If you reject that, then there is no sacrifice. There's no other sacrifice. There is no more hope. So I hope you can see by the language that this is not a backsliding issue. 
right? All Christians go through that to some degree at some at a certain time in their lives. It's not even something dealing with church discipline or being excommunicated. Because is it possible to come back and to be restored after being excommunicated? Yes, definitely. Paul says this. He says, commit them to Satan so that their body might be destroyed, but that their soul might be saved. This is something different. This is people who profess to know Christ, but never knew him. This is the the unpardonable sin. This is someone who is part of the covenant community and then he leaves. This is what verse 29 says. It says they profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And that is powerful language. So it's, it's not atoning language because you can't be atoned and then end up in hell. Right. So with these texts, you can you can see, first of all, seriousness of apostasy. But you can also argue from the negative. In other words, these these passages prove that the true the true believer will persevere to the end. First, uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And our faith is a gift, Philippians tells us. And that faith overcomes the world. Those who belong to Christ will endure to the end. But we still live in, we still live in a period where the church is a mixed multitude of believers and unbelievers. It's, it's exactly like in the, in the Old Testament, where, remember, what does it say? Not all Israel was Israel. In the same way, not all the church is the church. So the warning is this. How will I know if I am saved? Persevere to the end. How does that happen though? It's looking to Christ. Look to Christ. That is how you persevere. Right? And this builds into chapter 11. Chapter 11 is the hall of faith. Um, We must persevere. We must not give up. Because if you give up, you can't come back. If you turn away from the Lord, you trample underfoot the blood of Christ. So how are we going to persevere? Well, first thing he shows us is the heroes of the faith. People who have already endured to the end, right? People who, who did it. And as you go through the list, so it's from verse, if you read from uh, chapter 11, verse 8 onwards, you find people you expected to see, you know, Abraham, Moses, and people you did not expect to see. Uh, there's Rahab, the prostitute, for example. And Samson is here, which is really surprising because he did one good thing in his whole life. And, but it was at the end of his life. So he endured to the end. So it's not so much how you begin, it's how you end, right? it's how you finish. And the one thief on the cross can attest to that. So we can be encouraged by the names of the people who endured to the end, who looked at their lives, uh, who, who, who looked to Christ, who looked to the promise, who had faith, right? And we looked at their lives in detail uh, when we went through the Old Testament. So chapter 12, because uh, we're running out of time. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the th- at the right hand of the throne of God. So the, the author brings, brings it to an analogy of a race. And that is what it's about. Think of endurance. Think of a marathon, right? The Christian life is a marathon, enduring and pushing until the end. So he gives you a picture. He gives you this picture of like maybe being in a stadium or, you know, the Comrades Marathon. There's spectators on the side encouraging you, cheering you on, supporting you. 
In the same way, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses encouraging us and longing to see more people coming to heaven. So don't give up. By the grace of God, they did not give up. And so you should not give up. You have Christ. By the grace of God, you will persevere to the end if you belong to God. And that is why it is good to read the Bible. It's good to read the Old Testament. It's good to read biographies and church history to see people who persevere to the end, who love not their lives even until the end. So keep your eye on Christ. That is the key. It's not just inspirational, motivational walk like God. Keep your eye on Christ. It's not just a phrase. It might sound cliche, but it's true. Keeping your eyes on Christ will sustain you and it will keep you far greater than any emotional, inspirational feelings ever could. And that is really what the writer of Hebrews does. Right? He keeps showing us Christ, how much greater he is, how much better he is than anyone else. Greater than the angels, greater than Moses and Abraham. He brings a better covenant. He's the better sacrifice. He's the ultimate. He's not just the copies. Uh, he's the great high priest. He is greater than everything. And so uh, chapter 13, so that's the final chapter, he closes with a benediction. It's a very beautiful benediction. He says, if you look at chapter 13, verse 20, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then there's uh, final greetings, and that is the book of Hebrews. So I'll stop it there. Are there any, any thoughts, any questions? Any questions, especially if there's anything that does not make sense um, regarding whatever that we talked about. Uh, to be honest, I don't know. I don't know. I thought about that, but like at least from scripture, I can't think of. I can't think of anything that suggests like. So when I think back to. Is it Ezekiel? You know when he speaks of Satan falling and like those who fell with him. It seems like it was like a set number to me at least. But as to whether you know there's still angels falling, I really don't know. But if I was to to give an answer, I'd I'd, I'd guess and say no. It seems like it was like a once-off thing, you know. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. Too. Okay. Cool. Cool. Any other questions, thoughts on? on uh, angels, on salvation, you know, like, I mean, uh, I know we didn't spend much time, but it's like a lot of, yes, so Gahiso has a question. You can ask it in the chat or unmute, whatever you prefer. Now she has left the chat. So, uh, any other uh, thoughts or questions? Sorry, oh, you're back. Hi. Um, I wanted to find out what's the point of um, the Great Commission if it shares like the whole thing. So, what is the 
point of great as in you know god has already chosen them you know what's the point of going out and doing the things right um so i mean there's 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 you know god has chosen means on one level one way to answer that is god has chosen means of working right so he doesn't only just tell us that he has chosen he's he's told us that those that he has chosen will respond to him by faith right but how does come how does faith come about faith comes through preaching through hearing god's word right and so very simply put if you just look at it at a high level um sharing the gospel preaching the gospel is god's means of calling the elect getting the elect right so he has his people but you and i don't know who that is right you 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 might go and stand on the corner and like see a huge group of people but you don't know who's elected right who's elect who's not elect who, who's god's people the only way that you would know god already knows but the only way that you would know is by preaching the word and the way god has chosen to bring in those elect people is through through the great commission he's told his church that this is what he wants he wants to bring in the elect now you church go out and do the labor of bringing in the elect so <clears throat> it's simply it's simply god's means he has chosen that way of bringing people in to the church right so the elect will all be you know no one will be lost no sheep will be lost but christ still does the work you know um it's like like jesus jesus knew for example that you know he would die on a cross but he still did the work to actually get to that goal so it's just a simply question of god's means and uh how god works and does the things that he has said he would do and yeah and he does them that way because it's it's his wisdom you know it's it's in god's wisdom he has determined to work things and do things that way and the ultimate reason is it's all to his glory right it's all to his glory um all these actions the church going and calling the elect it proclaims his name it it, it glorifies him so i hope that 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 makes sense that's the reason why we should still do the great commission piece because god has shown that it's the means that he wants to save people by you know he could he could save them any other way but he's chosen this way so i hope that that makes sense okay and then Sipura has a question. He says, is there a way of knowing that I am not self-deceived like the person in chapter 6? I'm just turning there to the actual person. So, uh, chapter 6. So, is there any way of knowing I'm not self-deceived like the person in chapter 6? Or should I just focus on enduring the end? Enduring to the end. So, sorry, I'm just like going to the exact verse. Yeah, I mean, there there is a way of knowing that you not deceived, and that's checking God's word, in a sense, you know. And, um, I mean, God's God's word, like God's word, provides a a lot of things for us as believers. Like, how do you know you belong to God? You know, uh, fruits of the spirit, uh, this and this and this. And another way of of knowing if you're not self deceived is by reading that. Like, you can read chapter six and see, okay. This is the person, this is what they look like. Lord, may I not be that person, you know. But I, I will say, I, I will, so, um, so I'm, I'm reading this, right. And I want to I wanna say, it's not, so I don't think that this is a person who is deceived, right. Because 
when it speaks about the person in chapter 6, this is a person who is willfully turning from Christ. So remember when it comes to like, we had the unpardonable sin of when uh, didn't Matthew or Mark, or both Matthew and Mark, Jesus says that the Pharisees have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. And so they committed unpardonable sin because these are people, the Pharisees, they know who Jesus Christ is. They know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They know, they can see his works. It's like Jesus, the Lord and King, everything. There is no spiritual blindness per se, you know. It's willful disobedience. It's, it's just rebellion against God. And so they, act, they attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to demons. They say, no, he's doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit. No, by the, sorry, the Holy Spirit is working by the power of Beelzebub or demons, right? So it's, it's a very much a willful person. These are people who trample underfoot the blood of Christ. Who It's, it's a willful. It's people who know the truth and then they choose to reject it. It's out of disobedience. And so it's not... This is, it's not necessarily a person who, you know, they're like, maybe they, they didn't really understand the faith or, you know, they were nominal Christian per se. These are people who I know that Jesus Christ is Lord and this, 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 and he will rescue me, but I don't want him. You know, I'm, I'm choosing to, to apostatize, to leave the covenant community. Um, it's like, for example, if a pastor were to leave the faith, they know very well what they're doing. You know, it, it, it's willful. So I'll, I'll just say like, I don't think the person in chapter 6 is a person who's, who's deceived because it, it falls into the whole unpardonable sin. It's people who have just chosen to reject um, Christ, you know, willfully, without necessity. I want to be careful with, with using like spiritual darkness, you know, but it's like they can see Christ and they're choosing to leave the covenant community. Okay, so I, I hope that, that answers it. But yeah. Um, so, sorry, just to, like, one last point on that in chapter 6. Because it says, I think it's verse 4. It's impossible for those who, because they've been enlightened, they've tasted. And then when it describes them, and then to have fallen away. Because they are crucifying, once again, um, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So, can you see verse 6? They're holding him up to contempt. That's like a woeful thing. So, yeah, that's 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 the thing. Okay. And then Moswudi is asking, please explain the definition of priesthood in the Bible as follows. The priest before Christ, Christ as the priest, and save people as being royal priests. That is a brilliant question, actually. Uh, okay, hold on. Let me go first. Peter 2, verse 9. So, the priest, okay, in the meantime, I'll start reading. So the priest before Christ. So priest, when you think also priest, like there was a priesthood and the priest, they were kind of like the spiritual gatekeepers of the nation of Israel. They represented the people to God, right? Um, and so as representative, that's why when you read the Old Testament, you will see that there was um, things that were reserved for the priest. They, it was like a, a full-time occupation, um, they would, uh, you know, administer God's word to the people. They would do sacrifices for the people. On be so, sacrifices, give sacrifice to God on behalf of the people, right? So they represented them. Um, and even when we looked at the, those books back in the Old Testament, we spoke about the clothing. It was supposed to represent, you know, a whole lot of different things. And so they represented the people and they carried out sacrifices and 
they they maintained the temple. The, the the temple was under their jurisdiction, their control, and yeah, right. I'm gonna give that basic definition. And so Christ comes, and Christ comes, and he comes as priest, and he is a priest because now Christ, he is first of all, he's the ultimate sacrifice, right? Um, he is the, the he's the Holy One of Israel. He is the representative of us, and that's what Hebrews clearly goes to lengths to explain to show. Um, he represents us to to God. He's the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. Because the nation of Israel, they would have to the priests would slaughter animals, you know, regularly. And if you think about like the history, they must have slaughtered like millions of goats and rams because you know they had to atone. For the for the sins of the people um, daily, but it was never enough. You know, you needed uh, the blood of an innocent one. You needed the blood of Christ. So um, he's so Christ represents the people, and I'm just trying to make sure I've covered all the important aspects. Um, and the temple again, you know, the temple is Christ's body, um, and he's he he you know destroyed this building. So sorry, destroyed his temple. I will raise it up in three days. Um, um, and all that. So I hope that makes sense, right? So he's he's he fulfills that role of a priest for all these people, right? We don't need any more little priest. And then Christ as a royal priesthood and saved as being part of a royal priesthood. So so what first Peter two verse nine says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellence season of whom um of whom you so of him who called you out of darkness into his mouth like once you were not a people but now you are god's people once you are not so now we are part of we are part of the priesthood because we do the same thing as the priesthood which is proclaim the excellence of god right um so the church is, in a sense, it's the new Israel. And so we fulfilling, we fulfill a role, a part of the priesthood as well. That was under the Levites. We also have the same duty, the mandate now um, to proclaim the gospel. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope, I hope that makes sense. I don't really have any more words to add to that. So before I double on, I hope that that's fine. If you want me to clarify anything, just add it there. And just want to say, guys, like we are past our time. So if you have to drop off, please don't feel bad. Uh, we'll just continue this question, comments, say, comments, time. So, okay. Smog is asking, we face three sources of temptation, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Christ Jesus faced the world and the devil. Nothing from his flesh. Sorry. Christ Jesus faced the world and the devil. Nothing from his flesh since he was not fathered by the seed of Adam. Does that not make him a superman compared to us who are buffeted with the flesh, the roaring lion and the... Um, no, it, it, it still doesn't make him a superman because he's very much a man. So he, 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 he dealt with... So when we struggle, right, we, we, don't, we don't necessarily struggle with and i want to word this correctly we don't necessarily struggle with our sin nature right we struggle resisting our sin our no that's not the way to to word it um okay so let me let me just 
let me just put it like this, right? Because I haven't thought this through clearly. But he faced he faced the the temptation to to give in to sin, right? Same way that you and I do, we just give in, right? But the struggle the struggle isn't necessarily the giving in. We give in to sin, and then we just feel defeated. You know, we feel upset or whatever, whatever, whatever. But the the resisting part that is where the struggle is, right? In a sense, giving into sin is not a struggle. Resisting sin is a struggle. Christ resisted temptation. He resisted the devil, right? Where you and I would fail, and once you fail, like, like oh, you know, I've committed the sin. I've done this. You know, now I have to wait until the next or try again. But to keep on resisting, you know, that's something that no human has has ever done successfully. You know, to keep on. Okay, I'm not gonna give in to 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 lust, to anger, to uh, all these things. You know, it's like, and if you if you know anything about you know the struggle against the the flesh, the longer you you fight, the harder it becomes, right? But at some point, you cave into your sin nature, and it's like, okay, now we fight again tomorrow. For Christ, that never stopped, right? Like for him, he never gave in to sin. So I hope that makes sense. So. Uh, comparing to Superman is is yeah, it's it's not it's 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 not. So he did experience far worse than us. That's why, um, you know, he can be a a priest for every man because he experienced far more than everyone. You know, I might I might go through these things. You might go through something separate, but it's never really the same thing. But Christ has done for experienced that for both of us. He's experienced the full range of struggle. So yeah. So I think it's very fair to say he's not Superman. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, so uh, Claire Paul's just posting verse 5 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who never, yeah, but without sin. So, yeah. Um, any other questions or thoughts? Or is everybody happy? like a few seconds. <laughs>